again in this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. We're going to talk about new gun scholarship. Yeah, there's, as we're talking about all sorts of new trends in firearms, scholarship is one of them because we're seeing, we're noticing, I guess, and having the opportunity sometimes to uh, contribute to re-examining sources or sort of well-known stories in firearms history. And we're going to talk in a little bit to someone who's doing that. And actually really interesting uh, because he's basically, the book is a new evaluation of the history of John Moses Browning. And he somehow he manages to take someone that everybody thinks that they know and like just tell you you're so wrong. Well, and like... It's surprising that the book should even exist in the first place, in a way, because it's John Moses Browning. We should know everything there is to know about him by this point because he's been, you know, he's been relative to the firearms world for like 140 years. And like the last biography on him before this was like, what, 50 years ago? You know, and I haven't read that one like recently to know how much FUD lore is in that compared to what this guy did. Um, So the book is The Guns of John Moses Browning, The Remarkable Story of the Inventor Whose Firearms Changed the World. And the author is Nathan Gorenstein. And now he's really interesting because he's not a gun guy. Right. So we should also point out the fact that we're totally biased because we reviewed the yes, book for gun content. Before it went out. And I have a quote in the book <laughs> like about how awesome it is. So we're biased for sure in this one. But the the interesting part of this is what you said, which is the reexamination of histories we think we already know. And we're going to talk to Nathan here in a little bit. So we're just going to kind of riff for a few minutes on some of the stuff that we thought was cool about what he did. But what he really ultimately did was he worked with the Browning family and got to read all of this primary source material that has literally not been available ever. The question is, if somebody tried, <laughs> would they have been able to get right, it in the yeah, past? Like, yeah. That's, I, think, I think that's what's worthwhile about us chatting beforehand is that <laughs> how much of this stuff has really been tried to like really dig into these primary sources? Because we run into lots of firearms books where they wrote tons and tons of material about a given firearms topic. And for like, it's gotten easier to access primary sources with the digital age and being able to find the library you need to go to or email somebody there, whatever. But those resources existed then. Like there were content, there were contacts for these places then. (laughs) John Moses Browning had family then. If he has family now. (laughs) He had family then. Like it's all been around. So why are our discoveries now like so groundbreaking when we look at primary sources in the world of firearms? Well, and you know, it's, I feel like to some extent we're like the telephone game. Like that's, and (laughs) like you and I are like, we do this too. You know, we've talked about that with our collections and some of the oopsies in our collection. Yeah. You know, is that like you, you know, somebody wrote the history and we assume that person was honest and did all the research and scoured through Or just read a serial number correctly (laughs) and not two and a half million instead of two million. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, Sorry, Eisenhower. Um, you know, but it's the same. Like you, you assume that you it's it's presentism, I guess. You assume that that person not only is honest in their research and scholarship, but that today's standards of scholarship would be applied to a book fifty years ago. Right. Well, it's kind of like sorry, didn't mean to, I'm on a roll. Go. It's kind of like you know the Crow Killer book um, from like the mid twentieth century. The historians mm-hmm. that wrote the Crow Killer about John Johnston, Jeremiah Johnson, the reading Johnson, and it's all oral history and it's all bullshit. Yeah, and 
it seems like there. It's not to say all older histories of firearms are bunk, <laughs> but that's nice. there's you like said a certain nice. there's <laughs> nice <laughs> there's a certain level of there's a certain level of we're going to write this down, and if we don't have the information, we're just going to fill in the blank. Yeah, like, and you see this, you see it too, in like person to person, like firearms, like storytelling or history, like, and I even people that if I'm out and about in the gun world, like say I go visit a gun shop near where my parents live or something, where somewhere I won't be recognized, and start <laughs> talking. You're so famous. I just meant around Cody, like I'm yeah. known to all the gun shops here, so they're not going to do it to me. Is I was here for how many years, and like I feel like nobody knew who I was every time I went to a gun shop, like. Or they knew, but they didn't like me, so they just didn't like. They I think that's me. the problem. Have oh, you been to some of those? Well, they a lot of those haven't survived. <laughs> Anyways, before we go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> but like if I am somewhere that it, I get it, it does sound a little present. If I'm somewhere where I wasn't recognized, um, <laughs> like the three times you've been recognized, Danny's. Danny's it's really going to my head. <laughs> but you know. When people just assume that I don't have a lot of knowledge about a subject, they will say something, and I'm like, I instantly know this is nonsense, like what you're saying. But they're just filling in a gap, and I'm like, I have no idea where you're getting this information from. But And what it is is people like to fill in the gaps, and I think for a long, long time in firearms history, that was okay even in print. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to the industry, too, of, like, it was all it was a lot of, like, gentlemen's agreements. Yeah. You know, where it's like, wink, wink, nod, nod, like, this is fine, you know? And that was how this industry really operated for a really long time was, you give me your word and we'll do it. And, you know, and then they get mad when they get screwed over in the end. Because, I mean, I had that experience recently with the auction world where I was trying to defuse the situation and, you know, one guy said that, you know, this auction house treated him poorly. And I was trying to figure, and I was like, okay, cool. Like, so can you send me the lot number so that I can tell yeah, <laughs> um, whether or not, you know, like there was wording or anything that, and so I'm trying to work with both sides. Both sides are super, you know, amicable, amiable, uh, whatever word I'm trying to use there. And the thing is, is that um, when it came down to it, I was told before I got to the person by other people, like, oh, yeah, they've got everything, they've got everything, they've got everything. And then I learned that, like, it wasn't written anywhere. It was a verbal agreement. And yeah. it was, but it was, like, it was, and this is not, I'm not criticizing this person because this is just the, like, I think a great example of the entire industry is that, like, there is all of this certainty to these different elements of firearms history or what people, you know, do and do not purchase or collect or any of those things. But then, surprisingly, it, you know, you have a bunch of grown men <laughs> that are writing stuff down, you know, and they're not, you know, necessarily going all those steps. Um, and so when they listen to somebody, they believe what that person said and they don't necessarily need to deep dive anymore. And I think that that ran into we see that kind of problem or a similar problem with like old Winchester histories, because like some of those, you know, I'm thinking like Williamson, his is a little better sourced. Um and, and it's not just Winchester. There's other histories, too. Like, within the lifetimes of some of these people that would have been around in, say, like, Edwin Pugsley is a good example of this, right? Like, he worked at the Winchester plant in the 19-teens. Then he worked there for a really long time. And we have all kinds of letters from various people to him asking him how things were done at a certain point. So, essentially, it's it's written down, but it's really just an oral history. Like, that is his memory of how it was put onto paper sent out his letter, and then that's a citable document. But 
ultimately, it's like relying on his memory 30 years later, not going back to when it actually happened and what they wrote down at the time. And that's like, and I think sometimes it was, that's, that's even a pretty good example of that. Like, cause it's, it's still Edwin Pugsley. It's within his lifetime. Sometimes I think it was just interviewing somebody that knew Edwin Pugsley and what they said about what happened. And then we'll write that down as the history. Well, you know, it just totally made me think about um, the example of the Winchester one of 1000 mm-hmm. and the significance of the one of 1000s and right. how everyone claims that they like did all that stuff. And then we have that letter from, it was Pugsley, right? Was there's it, there's a couple, it, there's, so in the most recent exhibit that we've worked on, I found a couple others. So oh, there's cool. the one from Pugsley that's like, I just think this is, we had good lots of ammunition that day. That's why the gunshot yeah, good. Yeah, but that he didn't really like know what anyone was talking like, about. But he, he had also, asked people what it was, and right. everyone was like, I don't know. Right. And then, but he, but Pugsley's letter also has the problem that it never accounts for why they, he, he was assuming they were testing every thousand guns, right? So if he's blaming it on ammunition, that means they actually were running this test. Whereas another letter between like Tom Hall, who was the curator of the collection at the time, and the PR company working on the whole 101,000 campaign was like, well, it's pretty clear they weren't doing this because the guns aren't a thousand apart. Like, you know, some t- we'll see five in a group and then it'll skip a bunch. And then we'll see, you know, like this group of 10,000 will have like 30 or 40 in it. So they were like, they were going off the idea that was like, these guns occur too close together to have truly been... Do you mean um, when you say Tom Hall, the, Tom Hall and the one on one thousand? Do you mean like when the movie was coming? Yeah, out? Yeah, when they okay. were prepping for the movie campaign to like make this big. It was like Homeboy was not alive during the one of one thousand. No, being no, sold. no, no. <laughs> when they were doing the PR campaign for the Winchester seventy three movie, where they publicized, if you have a Winchester one of one thousand, send it in. Um, it's one of those moments where, like, everyone gets excited and then it totally bites them in the ass because right. they like learn their own history is not right. Right. So they then they comb through the records and they're like, wait, they only did this promotion for like two years in the ledger, two or three years in the ledgers, and all these guns are really close together. So what's the deal? Yeah. So that's the other letters that kind of suggest it wasn't, but that's a bit off. Yeah, and, and, you know, and all this comes back to the fact that you know it's just interesting because you have this assumed history, and you know people who are who are authority figures like mm-hmm. Evan Pugsley and people who are perceived authority figures, and we just kind of regurgitate their history and somehow and and to some extent with our job as we've admitted that we've messed up in the past and we still and always will is as a curator not as an active researcher, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you do have to just go with, you know, what is, you know, published multiple times and, you know, multiple credible quote unquote sources, you know, because you don't have the time to find it out yourself. You don't right. always have that time. And so, you know, the fact that, and then, and then I guess you don't have that time. And then you, there's a pool of things that you think you can search, right. um, you know, like our archive, but like Nathan, was, you know, went straight to the source. And I don't know if a lot of people would, you know, have the audacity to, to go straight to the Browning family and ask, you know, or and it comes down to personality, too. I mean, like other people could have asked and maybe they were like, these guys are jerks, yeah. you know, and they don't want to deal with them. And so he was able to basically tap into an entire primary source market, if you will, on a person that like those things have just been sitting there and they're not really and they haven't been known. They're not sitting in an archive somewhere. God, I hope they are someday. Yeah, um, I, I hope so, too. Um, but and I get that. That makes a lot of sense is like especially with these family archives, there's a question of sometimes the families just will not make the information public. Yeah. And that is a big gap in knowledge. But, you know, like, you know, 
this uh, it's been a couple of years now, but when CN Arsenal does some digging in the U.S. National Archives to find out that all the World War One trench guns probably were more likely, you know, everybody calls them trench guns, and yeah. they're like, hey, we routed the Kaiser, and they got so mad that they issued a complaint about it, whatever. Most of those guns were used, if they made it to France, were probably used for guarding prisoners. The ones that did make it to the trenches, the troops were pretty mixed on. Like, some of them were like, oh, it's all right. Others didn't like it at all. So it's like, and that's, we're talking about like a couple hundred guns in an order of 20,000. So, but that, you know, that's one that the the material has been there. You don't have to have a good personality. You don't have to like woo the family to let you have access to these secret documents. That has been in the National Archives accessible to virtually any researcher that wanted it. And yet for 100 years, the sort of trench gun myth has survived. Yeah. Well, and that goes to speak to using the, you know, using CN Arsenal as an example, the whole new age scholarship. And like the people who are doing research are very different than people who would have done research before and have different mindsets of it. Right. And we mean, or you mean, if I can know your (laughs) headspace, (laughs) not new age, like, we mean new age, like new types of researchers, (laughs) not communing with John Moses Browning's ghost. Um, I'm just going to put this out here and we're not going to edit this out. So we already did this. And we, we tried this take and it and didn't work. And we screwed it up and Danny really wanted to make that joke. And then we screwed it up again. And that's why I started laughing before he even said it because it wasn't funny when it came out of his mouth this time. But yes, let's keep going. And Was it funny the first time? Honestly, I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> so he said scholarship as in what did you say, John Moses? Scholars, new age scholarship, as in new researchers <laughs> not communing with the ghost of John Moses Browning. Yeah, and you know what? That's actually true. Um, I am familiar with someone who footnoted spirit conversation, a, a Mormon who quoted or who footnoted spirit conversations with John Moses Browning as evidence. But you know who it was not? Nathan Gorenstein. Hi, Nathan. Hi, nice to have me on board. Uh, you have a great museum out there. And you guys are very helpful for the book. Well, I have to say that we're so, biased like all the way around. <laughs> that assertion. Yeah, we're pretty biased. <laughs> so, Nathan, you have a new book out. It's called, I'm looking at it because I know that the second part of it's long. Uh, the Guns of John Moses Browning, The Remarkable Story of the Inventor Whose Firearms Changed the World. Um, and I think we already full disclosure this, but we'll full disclosure it that Danny and I kind of helped with some you know, gun terminology and gun content. So we are, you know, 100% biased, but we also 100% love the book. So um, can you talk a little bit about kind of your background? Because you don't come from a gun background like we get in a lot of gun books. No, I don't. I was, uh, I come from Massachusetts, though there were more gun owners up here than people tend to think. Uh, I was in newspapers for a long time. I worked in Western Mass, Wilmington, Delaware, covered Joe Biden's first campaign back in the day. and uh, I spent much of my career at the, at the Philadelphia Inquirer doing more or less investigative work, um, which was really helpful for researching this book, actually. And I, I got into firearms looking into another book that required some knowledge of firearm history. And I sort of went down an Internet rabbit hole. Uh, I knew who Browning was, sort of. I knew about the 1911. Of course, I knew about the automatic rifle. But as I researched it, I, I, I realized how much he had done. And one day it hit me that, uh, you know, his guns had more or less won World War II. 
And so I went looking for a book about all this because I was really intrigued about, really wanted to know how did one guy do this? How did he invent these things? And there wasn't anything. Um, there's tons and tons of books about his firearms, of course, which were very helpful to me in writing my book. Um, but there was nothing that explained how he did it. And the only book that attempted to explain who he was was written um, in the 50s by his eldest son, Jack. And then it was um, severely edited before publication, I think by his son, Val. Um, and it's a great book, it was a good resource, a better resource though was the unexpurgated version given to me by the Browning family, which has lots of great stuff that was taken out of the book so as not to ruffle various feathers in the firearms industry and other places. Um, so I found this book and I thought it was an amazing idea and uh, for a book, um, I've always liked writing about things people didn't know about. My first book, um, Tommy Gun Winter, Tommy Gun's only like two pages in the book, guys. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the book is a fact. All this is totally true. It's about um, what was once an infamous crime gang in Boston in the 30s that involved a minister's daughter, uh, an MIT grad, and uh, two thugs from uh, Dorchester who happened to be my first cousins twice removed. It was a huge family secret. No one ever talked about it. And um, I didn't really learn about it till I was 40. And it turned out to be an amazing story. It's a great book. If you can get it, you might have to buy it on the used market because it never went to paperback, unfortunately. But there are some people in Hollywood actually who say they're gonna make a film out of it, but I'll believe that when it happens. There's a lot of talk out there and not all that much action. But anyway, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I um, found a great agent, Alice Martel. Alice, thank you, and a, a very great, Great publisher, Scribner, couldn't have asked for anything better, and um, and wrote the book. That's really, I really appreciate your insight there. That um, there's a lot of there's a lot of books about guns, but there's very few about the stories that go along with them. Because, and Ashley and I talked about this a long time ago on the podcast. I think our episode was um, how oh, I can't remember that, like the real gun designers uh, of the Connecticut River Valley or something. Yeah, like that. We, that was like season because, one. I feel like. Yeah, that was that was way back in the day. Um, but it's it, it's true. There's all these amazing stories that go along with these well-known firearms. Um, and there, there's lots of high drama. You know, it's 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 people behind all this and people are dramatic, um, especially in the gun business. So, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, did you have like a, in, in researching this? Is there a sort of favorite story you have from Browning's career that was something that was relatively or maybe totally obscure before this there are two and uh, as I, i'll preface this by saying that one of the challenges as authors you don't want to give away the whole book but so this is only right. part of it there were, there were two two of the biggest uh surprises to me and fascinating stories was the the true story behind how why he and winchester parted ways which people have said is that one of the worst business decisions in the history of the world certainly Winchester's worst business decision. And the story behind that has always been that um, Browning, this was over the A5 shotgun, Browning you know, semi-automatic five shell, first successful semi-automatic shotgun uh, with an amazingly complex action. I mean, just to think about how Browning invented, that's amazing. But uh, the story has always been that Browning wanted royalties and Winchester wouldn't give it to him. Well, that's not true. 
Winchester had agreed to give him royalties on his first semi-automatic shotgun that he gave them four years earlier. And I have a signed contract that says we'll pay you X dollars per gun for X years and all that kind of a thing. The, the reason why he broke up with Winchester, and this is based on the unexpurgated text by, by Browning's son, who would have heard the story from his father, his uncle, you know, it would have been big war in the family, uh, is that, well, it's also from letters I have. So it's a combination of those two um, sources. Um, Browning, by this point, was getting, Browning never got royalties from Winchester. He got a flat fee, which was good. But by this point, it's clear he and his brother, Matt, who were the big finance guy, were unhappy with their financial situation, witnessed their demand for royalties earlier, which Browning, which Winchester acceded to. But what happened was that Browning already had a relationship with FN that predated the shotgun. The story has always been, oh, you know, you know, Browning had never been to FN in 1902, and that's not true. He he had a relationship with FN long before anyone has ever known before. To another fascinating story, which I won't tell yet, because you have to read the book on that, involving an engineer from Philadelphia. Um, uh, but he goes into, and, and, he, and he's already agreed with FN that they're going to build a shotgun. The only question is who's going to build it in the States. And Browning is already angry at Bennett and Bennett's angry at him over other issues involved in the relationship. And so Browning says, well, screw this, pretty much in that language. I'm going to go in and ask for so much money that Bennett's going to throw me out of the office and that'll end it. And I'll just have that make it and I'll find someone else in the States. So the break was very deliberate on Browning's part. And it was simply over a huge amount of money he was asking for because he wanted it. He was tired of dealing with Winchester. And that's why he left. It wasn't, it wasn't that Winchester... Um, it wasn't an argument over royalties. Winchester had agreed to do that. It was a question over whether they would pay royalties. It was a, a much more complex story. And the other story that, and more dramatic than I tell it, actually, I'm a better writer than talker. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other fascinating story, which I, no one's, I think, in the world has ever heard of, pretty much, is the true story, is the, the detail of Browning's eight-year-long legal battle with George Luger from the Luger Pistol. I mean, you know who invented the Luger pistol? John Browning. It's an exaggeration, <laughs> but but it's it's a great line. Um, you know, without going into the technical details, the Luger pistol is is a is a is a is a toggle link, and 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 what Luger did that made he inherited from another inventor, and what Luger did is shorten the action, reduce the size of the gun by revising the toggle link action. The problem is that Browning had done it almost five six years earlier for his first shotgun and use the same mechanical shortcut to make the action compact and lightweight. Uh, and so when Luger found this out, he flipped out because he wants to sell his gun in America and Browning had already filed a patent on this. So he sues Browning and he concocts this amazingly complex story about shipboard voyages and lying to people. And it's a great story just in terms of sort of corporate shenanigans. Uh, long story short, um, there's, um, there's, um, Browning is throughout the, um, court action, Browning is really the inventor, the first user of this mechanism. And at one point, Luger tries to make a deal with Browning and, and Browning's lawyer, there's a great letter from Browning's lawyer. You know, Luger's willing to end this if you just let him sell his pistol in America, but you don't want him to do that because you guys want to control the market. And that's what people don't realize about Browning and his brother. They were serious businessmen. They, 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 Browning was angry that Luger would 
accuse him of theft, Browning then turned around and accused Luger of theft. But they and Colt didn't want Luger in the country. They were trying to control the, the, the market for their own handguns. And one other thing about that, forgive me for going on, is as course of that battle, I found the only first person account ever that exists of the Brownings talking about how they invented their guns. There were two very lengthy depositions by John, Matt, and his brother, Ed, their half-brother, Ed, that were taken as part of this legal dispute. And in it, along with all the corporate shenanigans, they talk about how they invent guns. And no one had ever seen that before. No one knew. And one of the things that discloses is that the guy who made all those great prototypes in your museum was Ed, mostly. Um, Edwin always thought it was John. Well, no, it, it was uh, John did a little, Matt did a little, but it's a great account because they talk about how they worked. John and Ed would work together with Ed doing the machining and John doing the thinking. And it's a, it's a very, along with some other letters I got, it was um, very useful, those, those depositions. Well, and I think that's one of the things that I like the most about the book was the role of Ed Browning, because when we talk about it, it's about, and Jonathan Edward Browning, but uh, you got to like be very clear with the names. Yeah, there's uh, too many Johns and Eds. There's too many Johns going on. Um, but that, you know, when we talk about him, we talk about him more, you know, coming in pre the David Marshall Williams part of the Winchester story. And so it was really cool to be able to see kind of that relationship. Um, well, I have a really serious question. Do you know in all of your research um, how John Moses Browning lost his hair within 10 years? What? Well, I'm gonna, I know where this is coming from. If people have seen <laughs> a picture of this extraordinarily handsome young guy with all this thick black hair, and I would contend that's not Browning. And the reason, the, the, uh -oh. reason why, uh -oh. the reason why it's not in the book because my publisher kept saying, do you have an early picture of this guy? And I said, you know, I don't really don't think it's him. And I just don't think it's him. When I look at the face and I look at the features and I look at the expression, I may be wrong. I, and I have no proof. It's just my intuition is that that's not the guy. I may be dead well, that, that. That breaks my heart. because he went. From <laughs> I have to change a lot of stuff on my tour because we got to reword our <laughs> oh, I may be, breakup I have, letter. We got to reword this photo. <laughs> I have no proof of that. You understand uh, that, you know, and I don't mention in the book because I don't know, but if yeah. you ask me, I will tell you that I just don't think it's him, but. So you didn't in your, you know, in your research with the Browning family, you didn't uncover any young, young pictures of him. No, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I, I don't think it's him is, is that um, we, we forget that the, Ogden had no, um, Railway until 1865, when Brian, the first 10 years of Browning's life, the place was the middle of nowhere. Um, and then the Intercontinental Railway came through. And, and I think, you know, I, photography probably wasn't high on the list of, of um, you know, pastimes in Ogden. Probably, I'm getting, you know, this is just my surmise based on the history of it until sometime later, particularly personal photography. There are some early pictures of the town, but um, did this sort of basic old time photos of geography that you see. But no, I did not come across any really early pictures. I did, was shown a blanket of hair, light brown hair, that I'm told was Browning's, but they weren't sure. 
And I, again, it's one of these things, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Everything I've, I've, I've never seen any, the black and white picture, so it's hard to tell, but it didn't look like he had light brown hair. So uh, it's, you know, Bruce Brown, I talked to Bruce Browning, who was unfortunately gone, one of John's um, grandchildren, who was a big believer in the book and, and helped get me access to 40 boxes of Browning papers, which was sitting in his basement for decades. Um, and now in Terrifying. a... Now in a uh, at, at Weaver State, but I'm, I'm not sure they're available to the public yet because of, I mean, I had the advantage of seeing them before they were processed by the university, which is really quite useful, extraordinary, actually. But um, um, Browning was very helpful, but he, he regretted that so much of what I was asking and what he wanted to know was never written down. No one, no one stored, I mean, held on to these memories. No one recorded these memories. Um, the best account we have, and it's disappeared, the only contemporaneous account beyond one newspaper article of Browning at work was um, uh, his, um, um, some um, memos that his brother Matt wrote over time. Once he realized his brother was becoming a significant guy, he started writing things down. And some of those are quoted verbatim in the Jack Browning manuscript, but the originals have been lost, unfortunately. Uh, so, oh, sorry. Um, is Matthew Browning's handwriting as terrible as John Moses's handwriting? Because I've been working up in Montana. Um, and so that Matthew Browning side of the family is up there. And they brought all these letters into me that were from John Browning to Matthew. And I was like, God, I can't read any of this. Well, those, man, I wish I'd known about those. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know either. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are a lost. And the story, they have been lost. Um, this handwriting is horrible. It took me forever to decipher. I have about, in, in the Weibo co collection, there are about um, 40 letters written by John to um, his uh, son and nephew, Mariner, um, mostly in the 1920s. And his handwriting is horrible. I, 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 would, I would sit and read them and read them again and read them again. And finally sort of was able to figure them out. There's a story I was told, I don't know if this is true, and again, it's not in the book because I'm not sure, is that when FN purchased the company, well, the story is that, I'm sorry, the story is that the Browning, two Browning sons, John's oldest son, Jack, and Mariner, Matthew's oldest son, burnt the brother's letters that they had because they thought they were not, you know, it showed the brothers as, what they were, I say that in a positive way, was two country guys. And they weren't, and when they were running to, 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 to each other, they'd make bad jokes, they'd, they'd have scatological humor, they'd, they'd make crass comments about people and they didn't want people to see this stuff. So they burnt it. That was one account I was told, which is really unfortunate. The other thing I was told was that when FN purchased Browning in the 1970s, they started destroying all the old files. And, and the story is that Bruce Browning rushed down there in his pickup truck and saved everything he could. And that's where those 40 boxes came from. Unfortunately, Bruce passed away before I could run that by him. But he did have all those boxes in his basement.
So. Well, I will say that when FN closed um, the factory, the Winchester factory, um, I think it was the Winchester factory back um, east, that the employees were destroying everything. Uh, my husband was there when it all happened. Really? Um, they were they were shoving records out the window because um, they all lost their jobs. And then there was like um, there was drawings on the wall that were painted over. Um, yeah. So it would not surprise me <laughs> if something had happened uh, back then, because it certainly happened in what, 2006, 2007. Yeah. When the factory closed. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, what, you know, when we all have piles of papers, I have, you know, in, a, in the back of our rooms here and, and you can see how someone who's been involved in it suddenly thinks, I oh, know one cares about that. Little do they know that lots of people care about that. Um, but things don't get saved, unfortunately. So I have a question about a Winchester side of a story because um, there's obviously the breakup that happens around the time of the A5 or as you have um, uncovered the conventional ones, not the real story. Um, so there's a Winchester side of the story when the when Winchester and the Browning sort of make up or are forced to make up in World War I. Um, and the Winchester version of this event is that Colt is ordered by the government to let other people or essentially forced by the u.s military to let other manufacturers take on production of browning automatic rifles because the government does not believe that colt can make enough to meet their demand winchester is one of those that gets this contract from the government except that they have to borrow all the plans and parts and things from colt to start up production they need help with this and um as edwin pugsley relays the story it was he that went sort of hat in hand to John Browning um, with a forearm for the BAR to get their help to sort of try and convince him to come back and help them make this gun. Um, and the quote is that Browning sort of holds this in his hand, turns it over and says, is alleged to have said that no one could make wood quite like Winchester. Is there any, did you find anything to corroborate that story or debunk it? Um I found nothing either way. I, I, I read Pugsley's speech. Um, it, it, all the contemporaneous records that I could find in newspaper accounts say that is why Winchester started making the BAR because Colt was behind, had all these contracts already in European armies, countries, was behind in everything. Uh, and the government was rushing to catch up. Uh, so they did tell uh, Colt to give Winchester their plans and Winchester did do an extraordinary job of, of turning those around quickly and producing them. And there is a photograph of Browning in with a Winchester executive from that time looking at a at a BAR. So I have no reason not to think that that's true. As far as I know that it is. I have nothing contrary. Yeah, there's two versions of that photo. One's with I think Pugsley's in the room in one of the photos. And I I think Browning and another family member are in the photo. And then there's sort of a narrower view of the photo where it's just Browning and, or John Browning and I think uh, Frank Burton. Yeah, that that photo you just mentioned is the one that folks have mostly seen. That, that's the sort of the one on the web and popularized in other books. Mm -hmm. But Browning spent, and not just Browning, but family members, Matt, not, not Matt, I'm sorry, Ed, Tom, one of his half-brothers, George, another half-brother, and I, I take that back. Well, Matthew was there too, actually. They spent much of the war years in Connecticut and, and Massachusetts helping out with production of Browning's guns. 
and Browning Sun Val, who actually, you know, no one, no one knew how to use these firearms. Uh, and we take all this stuff as this is common um, stuff to us. It wasn't to them. Who had ever seen a Browning automatic rifle? It became this amazing American icon in the, in the picture. If you go to my website and see this picture of this, Manhattan society lady, the, the well-known wife of a congressman, holding up a BAR in front of the New York Public Library as part of a war, war bond tour. So this was an amazing machine, but people had to figure out how to use it. Uh, and so Val Browning's son went off to uh, teach them. One of the things in the book are some great letters from Val talking about the military's reaction to the firearm. And he gets angry at them in a couple. He gets angry because one, we're not making any money off these things because Browning forgave most of his royalties. And two, he talks about how, how um, what, what's, what, what should I use the sort of fantastical expectations people have for Browning's guns. And it's interesting to hear him from France writing these letters back to Mariner, uh, his, his cousin. And that's another interesting thing in the book. Well, and, um, I know we have to wrap up here in a sure. minute, but I also really am. I, I was really interested because of the work that I did up in Montana about Jonathan dad. Um, I appreciated all of the background information on the Browning family to the Mormon church, you know, because you've got mm -hmm. that kind of happening all at the same time. And so, I don't know, I just loved all of the, the different facets and the different players in that family because it wasn't, you know, John Moses Browning was obviously, you know, very involved in the designing, but it's interesting to be able to see like his dad and, and their personal relationship and uh, why John Moses Browning only has one wife, which is, I, we won't say, but you gotta awesome. do that in the book. That's a fun story. Yeah. John wanted but, uh, to have more than one, but didn't. And there's other stuff, you know, interesting family stuff in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we love the book um, and we're pretty sure all the gun people we know will really appreciate the book because it really does take that technology and spin it in a totally new light and also debunk what we call FUD lore, which is essentially what old gun guys believe to be true because someone told them at a gun show. <laughs> um, but we really, really are grateful for you to come on. Um, can you explain where they can buy the book? And you mentioned your website. So just where people can right. check out more information. They can, there's a website, NathanBornstein.com. And we're the only Nathan Bornsteins around. So it's easy to find. And you can buy it in all the usual places. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. There's an audio version and a Kindle version. Uh, um, the audio version, I've, I've listened to part of it. The guy did a good job. Um, so I'm, I'm glad because it's uh, he handled. There's not that much technical stuff in the book because the publisher said keep it up, keep it up. No one wants to read it, but there's enough to explain what Browning did, and he does a good. The, the narrator does a good job you know, explaining the technical stuff and, and you know pausing in the right places and ex explaining it clearly. But yeah, it's a great book, and it's not it's it's not a picture book about guns. It's a picture book about a man and how he how he did what he did and the impact it had on the world. You know, he won World War Two. So, well, thank you so much. Uh, I hope everybody reads it. I did have some que questions from people about an audio book, so I'll let them know on my social media. Okay, that yeah, it is please. Available. It's, it's available. All right, and uh, to all our listeners, we will talk to you guys next week. See ya.
Next week on History Unloaded, we are joined by sociologist and professor David Yamane to talk a little bit about the concealed carry revolution. Check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms.